I'm Ted O'Connell, author of USMLE Step 2 Secrets and Chief Content Officer for Inside the Boards. This is the Step 2 Secrets podcast, where we provide you the high-yield content from Step 2 Secrets in audio format, as well as question breakdowns, so you can study on the go and get back to reclaiming some of your life. Haha, I faked you out. What's up, Boards Insiders? This is Patrick Beeman, host of the Inside the Boards podcast. This is not the USMLE Step 2 Secrets podcast. It is, in fact, Inside the Boards Study Smarter podcast. I included that intro because I wanted to let you know we launched our collaboration with Elsevier and our own chief content officer, Dr. Ted O'Connell, to produce an audio version of the USMLE Step 2 Secrets book, as well as high-yield question dissections from Dr. O'Connell and sometimes myself. Search for USMLE Step 2 Secrets, hit subscribe, and use it on your drive to study for your clerkships and to study for the USMLE Step 2. Today, it's high-yield surgery questions from USMLE Step 2 Secrets. What should you do if you are not sure whether a stable patient has an acute abdomen? When you are in doubt and the patient is stable, use as-needed pain medications, perform serial abdominal examinations, and consider CT scan. If the patient becomes unstable, proceed to laparoscopy and or laparotomy. Name a few causes of peritonitis that do not require laparotomy or laparoscopy. Pancreatitis, many cases of diverticulitis, and spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. Define cholangitis. How does it differ from cholecystitis? How is it treated? Cholangitis is an inflammation of the bile ducts, whereas cholecystitis is an inflammation of the gallbladder. Cholangitis is classically due to biliary obstruction with subsequent bile stasis and infection. Cholidocolithiasis, a gallstone in the common bile duct, and malignancy are common causes of obstruction. Autoimmune cholangitis, such as sclerosing cholangitis, and primary infection, such as Clonorchis sinensis and other parasite infections common in some parts of Asia, are other causes. Cholangitis classically presents with Charcot triad, which is right upper quadrant pain, fever or shaking chills, and jaundice. Patients may have a history of gallstones. Starts broad-spectrum antibiotics to cover bowel flora, such as piperacillin with tazobactam, and then manage more definitively depending on the circumstances. For example, cholecystectomy with evacuation of any common duct stones for gallstone disease, biliary stent placement for unresectable malignant obstruction. What is the cause of left lower quadrant pain and fever in a patient over 50 years old until proven otherwise? How is it treated? Diverticulitis. Treat medically with broad-spectrum antibiotics such as ciprofloxacin plus metronidazole. Initiate bowel rest with gradual advancement of diet and a nasogastric tube if nausea and vomiting are present. For disease that recurs or is refractory to medical therapy, consider sigmoid colon resection. What tests should and should not be done to confirm possible cases of diverticulitis? What test does every patient need after a treated episode of diverticulitis? Colonoscopy and barium enema should not be performed in the acute setting, 
because colon rupture may occur. However, one of these tests should be done in every patient after treatment to exclude colon carcinoma. Order a CT scan, if necessary, to confirm a diagnosis of diverticulitis. Describe the usual history of a perforated ulcer. How is it treated? Patients often have no history of alcohol abuse or gallstones, which are pancreatitis risk factors. Abdominal radiographs classically show free air under the diaphragm, and a history of peptic ulcer disease is often included in the patient description. Remember that a perforated bowel can cause increased amylase and lipase levels. Treat with surgery. What are the common causes of a small bowel obstruction? In adults, the most common cause is adhesions, which usually develop from prior surgery. Incarcerated hernias, Crohn disease, and malignancy are other common causes. Other causes include mechal diverticulum and intussusception, both of which are typically seen in children. What is the most common cause of fever in the first 24 hours after surgery? Atelectasis. Prevent and treat atelectasis with early ambulation, chest physiotherapy and percussion, incentive spirometry, and proper pain control. Too much pain and too many narcotics, which both can decrease respiratory effort, increase the risk of atelectasis. What are the other common causes of postoperative fever? The five W's, wind, water, walk, wound, and weird drugs. These summarize the common causes of postoperative fever in the order that they tend to occur. Wind stands for atelectasis and pneumonia. Water for urinary tract infection. Walk for deep venous thrombosis. Wound for surgical wound infection. And weird drugs for drug fever. In patients with daily fever spikes that do not respond to antibiotics, think about an intra-abdominal abscess. Order a CT scan to locate and then drain the abscess if one is present. How do you manage a patient with blunt abdominal trauma? In patients with blunt abdominal trauma, the initial findings determine the appropriate course of action. If the patient is awake and stable and your examination is benign, observe the patient and repeat the abdominal exam later. You can also do a FAST scan, which is focused assessment by sonography in trauma. This is used to check for free fluid in the abdomen and pelvis. Meanwhile, perform a CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis with oral and IV contrast. If the patient is hemodynamically unstable with hypotension and or shock that does not respond to fluid challenge, proceed directly to laparotomy. If the patient has a positive FAST scan, that is, there's free fluid, presumably blood, in the abdomen, proceed to laparotomy. If the patient has altered mental status, the abdomen cannot be examined, or an obvious source of blood loss explains the hemodynamic instability, order a CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis with oral and IV contrast. Also get a CT scan of the head and cervical spine if altered mental status is present. Diagnostic peritoneal lavage is no longer used because it is nonspecific and less sensitive than CT, and it can also alter CT scan results. How is penetrating abdominal trauma managed? In patients with penetrating abdominal trauma, for example, gunshot or stab wound, 
The type of injury and the initial findings determine the course of action. With any gunshot wound that may have violated the peritoneal cavity, proceed directly to laparotomy. With a wound from a sharp instrument, management is more controversial. Either proceed directly to laparotomy, your best choice if the patient is unstable, or perform a CT scan if the patient is stable. With non-operative management, perform serial abdominal exams. How do you recognize and treat an open pneumothorax? An open pneumothorax presents with an open defect in the chest wall and decreased or absent breath sounds on the affected side. This condition causes poor ventilation and oxygenation. Treat with intubation, positive pressure ventilation, and closure of the defect in the chest wall. To close the defect, use gauze and tape it on three sides only. This approach allows excessive pressure to escape so that you do not convert an open pneumothorax into a tension pneumothorax. How do you recognize and treat a tension pneumothorax? A tension pneumothorax may occur after blunt or penetrating trauma to the chest. Air forced into the pleural space cannot escape and collapses the affected lung and then shifts the mediastinum and trachea to the opposite side of the chest. Findings include absent breath sounds on the affected side and a hypertympanic percussion sound. Hypotension and or distended neck veins may result from impaired cardiac filling. Treat with needle thoracentesis, followed by insertion of a chest tube. What are the common causes of a neck mass? In children, watch for thyroglossal duct cysts which have a midline location and elevate with tongue protrusion. Branchial cleft cysts, which are lateral in location and often become infected. Cystic hygroma, a benign tumor also known as lymphangioma that is associated with Turner syndrome and treated with surgical resection. And cervical lymphadenitis. Cervical lymphadenitis is usually due to streptococcal pharyngitis, Epstein-Barr virus, which is common in the second and third decades, cat scratch disease, or mycobacterial infection. In terms of malignancy in children, leukemia or lymphoma may present with cervical lymphadenopathy. In adults, suspect malignancy, particularly if the mass is firm, non-mobile, and greater than 2 centimeters. Either lymphadenopathy from a primary tumor such as lymphoma or metastatic neoplasm, usually squamous cell carcinoma. The mass may also represent the tumor itself, especially with thyroid cancer. What causes a subdural hematoma? How do you recognize and treat it? Subdural hematomas are due to bleeding from veins that bridge the cortex and dural sinuses. On CT scan, the hematoma is crescent-shaped. Subdural hematomas are common in alcoholics and victims of head trauma. They may present immediately after trauma or as long as one to two months later. If the patient has a history of head trauma, always consider the diagnosis of subdural hematoma. If large, expanding, or accompanied by neurologic deficits, treat with surgical evacuation. What causes an epidural hematoma? How do you recognize and treat it? Epidural hematomas are due to bleeding from meningeal arteries, classically the middle meningeal artery. On CT scan, the hematoma is lenticular in shape. 
at least 85% of epidural hematomas are associated with a skull fracture, classically a temporal bone fracture, and many patients have an ipsilateral blown pupil, a dilated, fixed, non-reactive pupil on the side of the hematoma. The classic history includes head trauma with loss of consciousness, followed by a lucid interval of minutes to hours, and then neurologic deterioration. Treatment usually includes surgical evacuation. Define subarachnoid hemorrhage. What causes it? How is it treated? A subarachnoid hemorrhage describes bleeding between the arachnoid and pia mater. The most common cause is trauma, followed by ruptured berry aneurysms. Blood can be seen in the cerebral ventricles and surrounding the brain or brainstem on CT scan. The classic patient describes the worst headache of my life, although many die or are unconscious before they reach the hospital. Patients who are awake have signs of meningitis, positive Koenig sign and Brzezinski sign. Remember the association between polycystic kidney disease and berry aneurysms. CT is the test of choice and should be performed before performing lumbar puncture. A lumbar puncture shows grossly bloody cerebrospinal fluid, or xanthochromia, a yellowish color of the CSF due to breakdown of heme into bilirubin. Treat with support of vital functions, anticonvulsants, and observation. Once the patient is stable, do a CT or MRI angiogram to look for aneurysms or arteriovenous malformations, which may be treatable with surgical clipping or catheter-directed angiographic procedures. What does a unilateral, dilated, unreactive pupil after head trauma suggest? A unilateral, dilated, unreactive pupil in the setting of head trauma most likely represents impingement of the ipsilateral third cranial nerve and impending uncle herniation due to increased intracranial pressure. Of the different intracranial hemorrhages, this scenario is seen most commonly with epidural hemorrhages. Do not do a lumbar puncture in any patient with a blown pupil because you may precipitate uncle herniation and death. Instead, order a CT or MRI scan of the head. What is the imaging test of choice for skull fractures of the calvarium? How are they managed? Skull fractures of the calvarium, the roof of the skull, are best seen on CT scan, which is preferred over plain x-rays. Surgical indications include contamination, depression with impingement on brain parenchyma, or open fracture with CSF leak. Otherwise, such fractures can be observed and generally heal on their own. What finding suggests increased intracranial pressure? Increased intracranial pressure, also known as intracranial hypertension, is highly suggested in the setting of bilaterally dilated and fixed pupils. Normal intracranial pressure is between 5 and 15 millimeters of mercury. Less specific symptoms include headache, papilledema, nausea and vomiting, and mental status changes. Look also for the classic Cushing triad, which consists of increasing blood pressure, bradycardia, and respiratory irregularity. How should increased intracranial pressure be managed? The first step is to elevate the head of the bed and intubate the patient. Once intubated, the patient should be hyperventilated for rapid lowering of intracranial pressure through decreased intracranial blood volume due to cerebral vasoconstriction. 
mannitol diuresis or boluses of hypertonic saline, that is 3% normal saline, can be tried to lessen cerebral edema. Furosemide is also used but is less effective. Ventriculostomy should be performed if hydrocephalus is identified. Barbiturate coma and decompressive craniotomy through burr holes are last-ditch measures. Anticonvulsant therapy should be started if seizures are suspected. Prophylactic anticonvulsants are controversial, but may be warranted in some cases. Remember that cerebral perfusion pressure equals blood pressure minus intracranial pressure. In other words, do not treat hypertension initially in a patient with increased intracranial pressure because hypertension is the body's way of trying to increase cerebral perfusion. Lowering blood pressure in this setting may worsen symptoms or even cause a stroke. True or false? Lumbar puncture is the first test that should be performed in a patient with increased intracranial pressure. False. Never do a lumbar puncture in any patient with signs of increased intracranial pressure until a CT scan is done first. If the CT is totally negative, you can proceed to a lumbar puncture, if needed. If you do a lumbar puncture first, you may precipitate uncle herniation and death. What are the signs and symptoms of compartment syndrome? How is it treated? Pain, especially pain on passive movement that is out of proportion to the injury. Paresthesias, hypoesthesia, and numbness, which is decreased sensation and two-point discrimination. Cyanosis or pallor, palpable swelling and firm-feeling muscle compartment. Paralysis, which is a late ominous sign. Absent peripheral pulses, also a late ominous sign, and elevated compartment pressure greater than 30 to 40 millimeters of mercury. On the USMLE, the diagnosis of compartment syndrome often has to be made clinically without a pressure reading. Although pulses may be slightly decreased, they are usually palpable or detectable with Doppler ultrasound with compartment syndrome. Lack of palpable pulses is an ominous late sign. Compartment syndrome is an emergency, and quick action can save an otherwise doomed limb. Treatment is immediate fasciotomy. Incising the fascial compartment relieves the pressure. What is the most common bacterial cause of osteomyelitis? In what clinical scenarios should you think of other causes? Osteomyelitis is caused most commonly by Staph aureus. Think of gram-negative bacteria in immunocompromised patients or intravenous drug abusers. Salmonella species is the most likely cause in patients with sickle cell disease. Think Pseudomonas aeruginosa if there is a puncture wound through a tennis shoe. Diabetic patients who develop a diabetic foot with subsequent osteomyelitis usually have a polymicrobial infection. The gold standard for selecting antibiotic therapy is aspiration or biopsy of the affected joint or bone, respectively. Order a gram stain, culture, and cell count of the fluid or tissue if osteomyelitis is suspected. Check a white blood cell count and ESR or C-reactive protein. Which bacteria are the most common cause of septic arthritis? In what scenario should you think of another cause? Septic arthritis is most commonly due to Staph aureus, but in sexually active adults, especially when young and or promiscuous, 
suspect Neisseria gonorrhea. In immunocompromised elderly or neonatal patients, also consider gram-negative organisms. Aspirate the joint and order a gram stain, culture, and cell count with differential if infection is suspected. True or false, there is a high incidence of vascular injury with posterior knee dislocations. True, posterior displacement of the tibia is associated with popliteal artery injury. Order an angiogram if pulses are asymmetric, that is, weaker or absent on the affected side, in order to check for injury. What is the most common type of bone tumor? Metastatic, especially from breast, lung, or prostate cancer. What are the common findings with ligament injuries of the knee? How do you distinguish injuries of the anterior cruciate, posterior cruciate, medial collateral, and lateral collateral ligaments on a physical exam? Ligament injuries in the knee commonly cause pain, joint effusions, instability of the joint, and history of the joint popping, buckling, or locking up. ACL tears are the most common. Watch for the anterior drawer test. With the patient supine, the knee is placed in 90 degrees of flexion and the tibia is pulled forward, like opening a drawer. If the tibia pulls forward more than normal, that is more than the unaffected side, the test is positive and the patient has an ACL tear. PCL tears can be diagnosed with a posterior drawer test. Push the tibia back with the knee in 90 degrees of flexion. If the tibia pushes back more than the unaffected side, the test is positive and a PCL tear is present. MCL tears are suggested during the abduction or valgus stress test. With the patient supine and the knee in 30 degrees of flexion, place a hand on the lateral knee and push the lower leg laterally at the ankle. If the knee joint abducts to an abnormal degree, the test is positive and a medial compartment injury is present. LCL tears are suggested during the adduction or varus stress test. This is the opposite of valgus stress. With the patient supine and the knee in 30 degrees of flexion, place a hand on the medial knee and push the lower leg medially at the ankle. If the knee joint adducts to an abnormal degree, the test is positive and a lateral compartment injury is present. MRI and or arthroscopy can be used to confirm suspected tears and look for other injuries. Define shock. Shock is a state in which blood flow to and perfusion of peripheral tissues are inadequate to sustain life. Initial effects of shock are reversible, though it can result in organ failure and death. Although they are not included in a rigid definition of shock, for board purposes, hypotension and oliguria or anuria are associated findings. Tachycardia is also usually present. List the four primary clinical types of shock. One, distributive, that is septic, neurogenic, and anaphylactic. 2. Hypovolemic, 3. Cardiogenic, 4. Obstructive, from pulmonary embolism, cardiac tamponade, or tension pneumothorax. What are the classic parameters for each type of shock? In distributive shock, the cardiac output is high or low, pulmonary capillary wedge pressure is low, late, 
systemic vascular resistance is low, and the systemic venous oxygen concentration is high. In hypovolemic shock, cardiac output is low, late. Pulmonary capillary wedge pressure is low, also late. Systemic vascular resistance is high, and systemic venous oxygen concentration is low, late. In cardiogenic shock, cardiac output is low, pulmonary capillary wedge pressure is high, systemic vascular resistance is high, and systemic venous oxygen saturation is low. In obstructive shock, cardiac output is low, which is late, pulmonary capillary wedge pressure is low, also late, systemic vascular resistance is high, and systemic venous oxygen saturation is also high. With anaphylactic shock, the cause is usually obvious because of a temporal relation to a common culprit. Specify the usual findings in patients with neurogenic shock. Patients usually have a history of severe central nervous system trauma or hemorrhage and flushed skin. The heart rate may be normal. How do you recognize septic shock? Look for fever, tachycardia, tachypnea, leukocytosis, unless the patient is immunosuppressed, skin that is flushed and warm to the touch, and extremes of age. Start broad-spectrum antibiotics after pan-culturing, that is, blood, sputum, and urine cultures, plus others as dictated by the history. What clues suggest cardiogenic shock? Look for a history of myocardial infarction, congestive heart failure, or chest pain. Assess patients for risk factors for coronary artery disease. Most patients have cold, clammy skin and look pale. Distended neck veins and pulmonary congestion are usually present. How do you recognize hypovolemic shock? Look for a history of fluid loss, such as hemorrhage, diarrhea, vomiting, sweating, use of diuretics, or inability to drink water. Patients usually have orthostatic hypotension, tachycardia, sunken eyes, tenting of the skin, and a sunken fontanelle in infants. Patients have cold, clammy skin and look pale. Fluid loss may be internal, as with a ruptured abdominal or thoracic aortic aneurysm, or with abdominal trauma. The postoperative state may also lead to hypovolemic shock. What clues suggest anaphylactic shock? Look for a history of recent exposure to the common culprits, bee stings, peanuts, shellfish, penicillins, sulfa drugs, or any new medication. Treat with epinephrine, intramuscular is preferred, and fluids. Administer oxygen and intubate if necessary. A tracheostomy or cricothyroidotomy should be performed if laryngeal edema prevents intubation. Bronchodilators, corticosteroids, and antihistamines are all second-line agents in anaphylaxis. Monitor all patients for at least six hours after the initial reaction. What clues suggest pulmonary embolus as a cause of shock? Look for deep venous thrombosis. Look for positive Hohmann sign with painful swollen leg or risk factors for DVT. Remember the Virchow triad endothelial damage, stasis, and hypercoagulable state. 
Watch for common risk factors, including post-operative state, especially after orthopedic or pelvic surgery, recent delivery for amniotic fluid embolus, bone fractures for fat emboli, or malignancy. Patients classically have acute onset of chest pain, tachypnea, shortness of breath, right axis shift on EKG as a sign of right heart strain, and positive computed tomography pulmonary angiography or ventilation perfusion scan. Heparin or a low molecular weight heparin should be administered to prevent further clotting and emboli. What is the most important point to remember if a patient is in shock? The ABCs. Patients in shock often need heroic measures to survive and are among the exceptions to the wait and see and be conservative rules that are usually favored by USMLE examiners. Intubate at the drop of a hat, do not feed the patient, and avoid narcotics if possible. Treat the underlying disorder. Mental status changes are often an important clue to impending doom. Also monitor the EKG, vital signs, Swan-Gans parameters, though this is not being used as much anymore, urine output, arterial blood gas, and hemoglobin and hematocrit. What are the classic findings in a patient with an abdominal aortic aneurysm? How is it evaluated? Abdominal aortic aneurysm classically presents as a pulsatile abdominal mass that may cause abdominal pain or back pain. If pain is present, rupture or leak of the aneurysm should be suspected, although an unruptured aneurysm may cause some degree of pain. Ultrasound or CT scan is used for initial evaluation and diagnostic confirmation in stable patients, as well as for serial monitoring. Describe the classic presentation of aortic dissection. The classic presentation is a tearing or ripping pain in the chest or back. Always think of aortic dissection if a patient presents with chest pain and focal neurologic deficit. On physical exam, look for a systolic blood pressure difference of greater than 20 millimeters of mercury in the upper extremities, hypertension, and acute aortic regurgitation on exam, a diastolic heart murmur. Look for a widened mediastinum on x-ray, which is only present in 63% of cases, or an isolated new pleural effusion. Diagnose with CT angiogram. Risk factors include smoking, hypertension, drug use, and connective tissue disorders. There are two types of dissection, type A, which involves the ascending aorta, and type B, which involves the descending aorta. Generally, type A is treated with surgery and type B is treated with medical management. Medical treatment includes blood pressure control, and heart rate control. All right, thanks for listening. Don't forget, go subscribe to USMLE Step 2 Secrets, our newest podcast in conjunction with Elsevier, and keep listening to our Study Smarter podcast here for even more high-yield content to help you prepare for your clerkships and USMLE Step 2 exam on the go. As always, from the bottom of my heart, thanks for listening.